morning again. Hey, one more invitation uh, for you uh, this Christmas season. We have a few things. We obviously have the uh, uh, graceful Christmas that Karen already talked about, but just to let you know, we will also have a Christmas Eve service. It'll be at five o'clock. We would love for you to join us for that. That would be more uh, of us singing together, whereas the graceful Christmas is a little more concert in general. Um, So just so you know, five o'clock Christmas Eve. Uh, But the big thing that I wanted to just inform you about is we have two services coming up. One is, I don't know if you realize, but Christmas is a Sunday. Uh, So we're only going to have one service on Christmas Day and one service on New Year's Day. And both those services will be at 11 o'clock. So for those of you especially, we wanted to give you time in the morning to do, a lot of people have family traditions on Christmas morning, and then come at 11. We encourage you to come. Uh, there will not be child care at those. We're going to have the services be just a little bit shorter, and we're going to make them family friendly. I know on Christmas Day, uh, we're going to invite the kids to come down, maybe even sing a couple songs with us. Uh, we've even ordered some little gifts to give them, so we just want you to come and enjoy. So Christmas Eve, 5 o'clock, Christmas Day, and New Year's Day, one service at 11. Okay? None of you are going to remember that. But if you don't, go online. It'll tell you on there uh, everything you need to know. We're in the home stretch of Romans. Uh, I just want to say one more time, uh, I think the teaching team uh, has done a great job. Uh, I think Bryce was brilliant last week handling chapter 12, a very difficult chapter. Uh, we have four chapters left in Romans, and here's the way it's going to work out. I'm going to cover Uh, 13 and 14 today, and then I'll do 15 and 16 next week. So we will finish up Romans uh, next week. I've said this all the way along, but there is way more in Romans than we can teach through in uh, 14 weeks of sermons. So we encourage you, get into the book. The same is true. We're going to come into January. We're going to do Revelation in January. There is no way we can teach everything in Revelation. So just make it part of your routine to be reading ahead, reading along, taking some notes. Uh, But I also just want to let you know, as you're doing that, if you have questions for us, we want to be there for you. You're not kind of set out on your on your own to do this. So uh, we have a very simple email to remember. If you can remember the gracewire.com, which is all of our work emails. Uh, but if you just put in ask us at gracewire.com, that goes directly to me. And I would be happy to help you if ever I can. If you're reading something, you're like, this doesn't make any sense. What do you think this is about? Uh, if there is an answer, sometimes the answer is it's a mystery, but most of the time we can come up with an answer. So if you want to contact me, uh, I would love to be in dialogue with you. All that to say, you're not on your own. We're in this with you. Uh, last week, Bryce began to point out the stark difference uh, when you get to chapter 12 through the end of Romans compared to everything prior. There's just this major shift. So if you remember just a, how we've laid this all out, chapters 1 through 4 are the heart of the gospel. Chapters 5 through 8 are the assurance of the gospel. 9 through 11 
is the defense of the gospel. And so in those first 11 chapters, it's packed full of theology. Really, Paul is telling us what the gospel is. He's telling us what the gospel is not. He's making it clear to us that we are saved by faith, not by works. He even goes so far as to say, whatever faith you have is a gift, right? And that that God has pursued you, that God has given you the gift of of faith, and that it's a gift, and we need to understand that, and we need to live out Uh, our lives because God has entrusted us with faith. And now we get to these next five chapters, the last five chapters, and I would say Paul's now giving us the so what. So all of this theology, everything that I've just said, so what does it mean in your everyday life? All the theology in the world is pointless if it doesn't translate into our daily actions and the way we live our lives. So these are informing us how we should live how we should respond to the gift of salvation. Uh, It's moving from Christian theology, if you will, to Christian ethics. So chapters 12 through 16, if you wanted to title those, those would be called the transforming power of the gospel. In Christ, you are a new creation. And as a new creation, your desires should be transformed. What you love should be transformed. How you live your life should be transformed. What you pursue should be transformed. Everything about your life should be transformed by the gospel. And that's what we're getting into this week. Last week, uh, Bryce gave you, it was, again, a brilliant uh, look at 12. But remember, he, he had that long list of all the to-dos and not to-dos. There was, I think, if I remember right, 17 to-dos and four or five not to-dos. And, and he, he did a great job of kind of boiling all that down to the fact that if we love one another, that we fulfill the law. But if you look at this chapter, chapters 13 and 14, we add to that list. We add even more to the long list. But what I want to do is sort of uh, capture the heart of chapters uh, 13 and 14 for you. So grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 13. If you're using your journals, that's great. Uh, In the journals, we're on page 58, and the Bible's under your seat. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is one under your seat. We are on page uh, 948. And uh, I say this every week, but let me say it again. I want to encourage you to bring your Bible or the journals with you. We're going to be selling journals for Revelation again when we get closer to that series. But I love that you have that in front of you. If you are online, thank you for joining us. But I encourage you, have a Bible in front of you. Have it open. Underline keywords, underline phrases right in the margins of your Bible. Two reasons for this. One, it will help you to remember what we talk about, but it will also help you to get more and more proficient at navigating the scripture. So have a Bible, have it in front of you. Uh, If you're using the Bible under your seat, probably not very helpful to take notes, but if you really feel like you have to, that's fine. Again, if you don't have a Bible, you can keep the one under your seat. If you're at home and you don't have a Bible, you come by the church anytime. We would love to give you a Bible. So I'm going to read in chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, and then in chapters chapter 14, I'm going to read 10 through 12. But let's start with verse 11 uh, in chapter 13. So if you want to stand with me, I'm beginning chapter 13, verse 11. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, 
not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to to gratify its desires. Now go to chapter 14 and look at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise, strong words, your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Lord, thank you again for this teaching team. Thank you for Romans. Thank you for the journey that you have had us on as a church throughout this year as we have studied your word and just, just, it's just been a good year of going deeper and deeper in your word. I pray in these next few minutes that you would open our hearts and our minds to your truth. I pray that our hearts would be good soil, that seeds would be planted, that they would take root, that they would grow and bear fruit hundredfold. Lord, I pray that every person who's listening, whether they're online or here in this room, would leave different than they came because they have had an encounter with the living God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So I'm not sure how God speaks to everyone, uh, but with me, God usually speaks in the way of themes. I think it's probably because I have thick skull and God has to speak to me in themes. Otherwise, I don't hear him. But what I mean by themes is it's like the same message uh, from all different mediums. Like I get it from all different uh, sources at the same time. For example, when Meg and I launched Eagle Sports, what you now know as Sword Detroit, almost 25 years ago, as we first began to launch the ministry, I felt very strongly that God was telling me to study the book of Nehemiah. And I'd never studied the book before. And before I could even start studying the book of Nehemiah, a friend of mine gave me a book on Nehemiah. And then I would get in my car and I would turn on the radio and the preacher would be preaching uh, Nehemiah, right? And I'd have conversations with people and I wouldn't bring it up. And all of a sudden they were talking about Nehemiah. It was pretty clear God was using a theme to speak to me and get me into the book of Nehemiah. And so the reason I say all that is the verses that I read today are part of a theme for me personally, something that God wants me to see, wants me to clearly grasp more fully, and I have no doubt he wants you to see it and grasp it as well. For those of you who don't know, I recently uh, celebrated a milestone birthday, uh, one that has been getting me thinking. Did somebody say woohoo? Thanks. (laughs) Anyway, one that has been getting me, it has me thinking about this question. How much more time do I really have? And I don't ask that question like with a sense of morbidity. It's just a realistic question. How, how much longer do I have to do what I'm doing? It's just, it's just caused me to be more aware of that. I had a chance in September, many of you know this, to go to Colorado and hike in the mountains with my son Jake. And we hiked 95 miles in basically nine days. We, took, we were there for 10 days, but one of the days we didn't hike hardly at all. So, so uh, a lot of miles in a short amount of time in very rough terrain. It was awesome, but it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And even while I was there, I was thinking, I don't know how many more times I could physically do this. And again, not to be morbid, it's just as we get older, we can't do the things we could do. What I do know is 
I have fewer opportunities to do it than, say, if I were 30, right? So I've been thinking about this whole idea of, of how much more time do I have? How much more time do I have to, to, to be a part of advancing the kingdom of God? Crazy as it sounds, I even got this uh, message reinforced through a country song. Please don't judge me. Somebody already said, oh, boy. Uh, I... I, I seldom listen to music in my car. I'm, I'm mostly a talk radio guy, but I was uh, channel surfing, came across a country music station, Tim McGraw, big time country music singer. Oh, one person here likes him. Uh, was, he was singing a song about a 40-year-old friend of his who gets a diagnosis that he's going to die soon. Some of you know the song already. But anyway, his, his friend gets a diagnosis and his friend all of a sudden begins to do a lot of the things he'd already, he, he'd wished he had done, right? He, he, the song says he loved deeper, he spoke sweeter, he offered forgiveness where he was denying, says he read the good book, he took a hard look. But the whole hook of the song is the friend says to the singer, Tim McGraw in this case, I hope someday you get to live like you were dying, Right? And, and there's a hook there, live like you're dying. And that's really what the sermon is, is today. That's the title of the sermon, is live like you are dying. Again, I recognize that, that this is the theme for me, but I think it's the theme for all of us. So even in my devotion time, so I have a, a few uh, friends of mine, we're all doing the same devotion uh, book at the same time. It's uh, written by Chris T. Green. It's just called The One Year Walk with God Devotional. It's excellent. It's just it's one page each week where he takes a passage of scripture. Well, on November 28th, the passage that he used was Psalm 39.4, where David writes, O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. And then in the devotional, this is what T. Green writes. He says, many people would refer not to consider such questions. Maybe some of you are there right now. But they are, they are to be too morbid or perhaps, but David wants to know. He wants a sense of urgency that reflects the reality of our short lives. David wants to make every moment count. Understanding the brevity of our earthly lifespan will bring us a sense of focus like nothing else will. Did you catch that last sentence? He said, understanding the brevity of our earthly lifespan will bring us a sense of focus like nothing else else well. I'm guessing some of you are like, Pastor Doug, this is a very depressing sermon. But that's not my intent, right? My intent is not to draw your attention to, to the reality of death, but, but more likely, what is it that we want to do in this life? And here's the deal, whether you are 15 or whether you are 95, you are called to live with a sense of urgency, a sense of, of focus. We are called to live like our time on this earth is limited, right? Like, like this is, here's, here's what Paul is saying, like Jesus could return at any moment. So the passage we read, Paul writes in verse 12, the night is gone, 
The night is far gone. The day is at hand. The day is at hand. What is the day that he's talking about? He's talking about the day of the Lord, which is a, uh, it, the, the day of the Lord. We see it in scripture from the beginning of the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. It's, it's a day that every first century reader of, of Paul's letter would have known when he said the day is at hand, that he was talking about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is when Jesus returns to judge the world. So when we celebrate Advent, right, and we talk about the fact that Jesus came as the baby, the Christmas story, we also anticipate the day when Jesus returns. That's the day of the Lord, the day when we will all stand before Jesus in judgment. It's fascinating to me that when you read the scriptures, the New Testament especially, they all live with this expectation that the day of the Lord is at hand. They actually write and live with this expectation that it is going to happen at any moment. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, were they wrong? Like, did they read the scriptures incorrectly? Did they look at the prophecies about Jesus' return incorrectly? Did they make assumptions about Jesus' return that were incorrect? And the answer is no. They were living the way we are commanded to live. Jesus actually told a parable. You remember the parable about the, the lamp and, and the bridegroom? And he tells us to keep watch, keep oil in your lamp and keep watch for the bridegroom will return at any moment. We are to, put, to live our lives with that expectations. When you hear people say about our current life, when you hear them say we're living in the last days, you know they're right. And so was the generation before them and the generation before them, all the way back to Paul. That the days between Jesus' first coming and his second coming are the last days. And we are to live with that understanding. Why does this matter? Because, let's just be honest, if you knew by the end of this week that you were going to be standing before Jesus to give an account you would live differently this week, right? You would make different choices. You would make choices to have conversations that you might have been putting off. You would be more gentle with the people around you. That reality, I'm going to stand before Jesus on Friday of this week, would change what you do Monday through Thursday. There's no question for all of it. And I'm not saying you're living a bad life. I'm just saying that reality. But that's how we're supposed to live our lives, so Romans in 13 and 14, Paul is saying, pay attention to how you live, pay attention to how you love, because at any moment, you could be standing before Jesus to give an account. And he's going to ask you, how did you use your time? How did, you, how did you use the talents that I gave you? How did you use your money? And these chapters, chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15, it's practical advice, practical instruction for all of us is how to live in a way that, that honors all that God has provided for us. All right, so we're going to look at some of the ethical uh, instructions, if you will, out of 13 and 14. And the first one comes in, in 13.1. So if you want to look at 13.1, it says, let every person, it's pretty all-inclusive, so if you're not a person, you're off the hook here. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. A lot of application here. 
Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Remember, you're going to have to stand before Jesus by the end of the week. How did you do as your respect of authority and and holding to authority? I'll tell you something. I don't know if there's a passage of scripture that is more uh, analyzed, debated than Romans 13, 1 through 7. It's a book. It's a sermon series. There's more here than we can talk about. But a couple of, of, of observations that we need to see. It says, all authority good or bad, all authority, are in their place of authority because God has allowed it to be so. And here's the crazy part. It actually says God allowed it to be so, and there's a reason that God allowed it. Even if you don't understand the reason, even if it doesn't make sense to you, even if it doesn't feel fair to you, there's a reason. And we can just count on the fact that God is sovereign. Whoever's in leadership is there because God allowed it. And there's a reason for them being an authority. And the second thing he's saying is we are to submit, honor and submit to whatever it, whatever authority is over us. And this goes into the family structure, the church structure, the, the governmental structure, all of it. And here's the deal. Government is actually a gift. One of the authors I read this week said, even bad government is usually better than anarchy, right? That that government is a gift from God. People need some sort of governing system or governing structure. But the question is always asked when we read this, well, what about the oppressive government? If you're reading in commentaries, any commentary written since 1945 is going to bring up Hitler. Any commentary that talks about Romans is going to bring up, but what about Hitler? And what about those who opposed the movement of Hitler and and, and his slaughtering of the Jews? Were they in violation of of Romans 13, right? That's the the question that comes up. But there's two things that I want you to to, to get out of this. First of all, there's still an application for us because we don't live under that oppressive type of government. But there's also an application going beyond that. And keep in mind, what does Paul use as an example? Paying taxes, right? He says, pay your taxes. Like like work within the system that's a part part of where you are. And he's using that as an example of obeying the laws of the land when those laws do not conflict with God's laws. And he's talking about paying taxes for the same reason that Jesus talked about paying taxes. You remember when Jesus had that moment, they were trying to trick him and they said, hey, should we pay taxes? Embedded in the question was, we live under an oppressive occupational authority, right? The Roman government is occupying our land and they are oppressing us and they were very oppressive. Are we allowed to not pay taxes as a way of rebelling against the oppressive government? And what did Jesus say? No, pay your taxes. Give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's, right? So, so there's, there's an application in this. Paul is addressing a real problem in ancient Rome. Just a few years prior to the writing of the book of Romans, the emperor Claudius had, had kicked out all of the Jews out of Rome. And history tells us that one of the main reasons they were kicked out is because they refused to pay taxes as a way of rebelling against the current government system. Claudius expelled all of the Jews, right? And, and Paul is addressing this specific problem and he's saying, Look, you can't advance the kingdom of God in Rome if you're not in Rome. 
right? If you don't obey the simple laws, the laws that don't conflict with these laws, you're going you're gonna to damage your reputation and you're not going to be able to do the things that God has called you to do. For several decades, we have had the luxury or the privilege of, of uh, supporting Rob and May and the work they do called Business for Transformation. And the idea is that they find Jesus-minded people who go to closed countries. When I say closed countries, I mean those countries where it's illegal to share the gospel. And they open legitimate money-making, profit-raising businesses where they hire people, give them a livable wage, and even within their system, say, pay their taxes. And here's what we've discovered over the couple decades that we've been working with them is that when countries go through process, especially countries where it's closed, there are times when they expel many of the local missionaries. They will typically turn a blind eye to those who are doing the business for transformation. Why? Because they're paying taxes and because money drives the system, and they know that. So they turn a blind eye. So they, they get to stay. They just went through this in Morocco a few years ago where there was just a, a ton of missionaries kicked out. Well, those who were doing the business for transformation were allowed to stay. And so these mission-minded people are there, and they're opening businesses, and they're giving people a livable wage, and they're working within the governmental system, and they have this opportunity to share their faith over and over with the people that are working. We're seeing lots of Muslims and Hindus come to faith through this work. Now, I want to be clear. You are never required to follow the rules or to obey the law if those rules or those laws violate God's law. If your boss is your ruling authority over you, ask you to do something that is dishonest or even against the law of the land, you don't have to do what he's asking you to do or she is asking you to do if it's unethical. And we see countless biblical examples of this. We even see it in the life of Jesus. He was doing things that the, that the rabbinic law said was illegal. We see it in Acts. You remember the story of Peter and John when they're called before the Sanhedrin and, and they're in there and they say, you, you have to stop sharing Jesus Remember this story? And what do they say? Whatever is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. They basically said, we're going to do what God is telling us to do, even though we know it's against your rules. So what does this have to do with understanding the day of the Lord is at hand, that by the end of the week, you're going to be standing before Jesus? Well, here's what I would say. Don't get derailed fighting battles that you don't need to fight. Right? Don't get caught up in doing things that you shouldn't do. Don't cheat on your taxes. One, because it's a sin, but also because if, if it catches up to you, you're going to be working on getting out of trouble more than working on advancing the kingdom of God. Do the right thing because you're going to stand before Jesus and give an account. So the first ethical command of Romans 13 is honor authority. Paul then gets into verses 7 and 8, and he writes, pay your debts. If you borrow money, pay the lender back. But then he says something even better. He says, better yet, don't borrow money. Right? So people ask, does it mean that it's a sin to have debt and I borrow money to buy my house? He says, if you borrow money, pay it back. But better yet, if you can avoid it, don't borrow money at all. He says, owe people nothing but love. 
It's just a reminder us that debt has a cost. Like the borrower really is slave to the lender. Your ability to invest in the kingdom with your time, with your talent, with your treasures is hampered when you are drowning in debt. Some of you are even saying to yourselves, we can't support missions and mobilization right now. We have too much debt. Get out of debt. Get a plan. Get out of debt. The way we handle our finances affects our ability to serve and give biblically. All right, so the ethical uh, commands of Romans 13 and 40, honor authority, handle debt responsibly, better yet, avoid it whenever possible. And then Paul reminds us that all of the law is fulfilled when we earnestly and radically love one another. Look at 1310. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. So love does no wrong to a classmate. Love does no wrong to a family member. Love does no wrong to the bad boss. Love does no wrong to those who oppose you or offend you. Right, that long list of do's and don'ts that that Bryce gave us last week, the, the continuation of them this week, they're all fulfilled in this one command. Love your neighbor. Honor authority, handle debt responsibly. Love everyone, key word is everyone. And then look at verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. This is just another way of saying is be integral, right? Have integrity. What you do in public or in the light should be the same as what you do in private, in the dark. Are you congruent in your life? Pay attention. What do you do when no one is looking? Are you clicking on websites? Are you looking at images that you know you shouldn't? Are you chatting with someone in an inappropriate way? Are you sneaking around to have encounters with someone? When you travel and you're alone in your hotel room, are you watching stuff that you would never watch if your wife or husband were sitting beside you? The Bible's crystal clear. Everything that's done in the dark will be brought into the light. The day of the Lord is at hand. You will stand before Jesus someday, and there's going to be no secrets. If you knew by the end of the week that you were going to stand before Jesus, would it make a difference in the choices you make this week? Live with that real possibility. Live as if you were dying. So, honor authority, handle debt responsibly, love everyone, walk in the light. And then we get to chapter 14. And you can summarize all of chapter 14 in the very first verse. So if you look at verse 1 of chapter 14, Paul says, do not quarrel over opinions. Imagine how this command would change the church. Not just Grace Community Church, but the big C church. If we didn't quarrel over opinions, some churches are are very sacramental in nature. Some churches only meet on Saturdays. Some churches uh, don't allow instruments on the stage. All different ways of expressing. And and, and what if we didn't quarrel over those different expressions, right? What if we actually, sometimes when I read the Bible, I think, did the church, do do we ever read the Bible? (laughs) 
because we quarrel over that. And worse yet, we even go to the point where we say, if you don't do it this way, you don't get in, right? We decide who's in and out based on our opinions, not based on the gospel of Jesus, the gospel that's been laid out for us over and over as we've studied through Romans. I would just give you a warning. Beware of any Bible teacher or even a person of influence who is constantly on social media and their main program, their main message is an attack on other churches or on other denominational groups. It is not the Jesus way. So Paul is addressing this major area of division in the early church that is carried through now for over 2,000 years. And he's basically saying, these, these things that I'm listing in, in chapter 14, these are all secondary concerns. He says some practice Sabbath and some don't. Some practice special days and some don't. He says some obey the, 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 the Mosaic law when it comes to diet and some don't. He says some drink wine and some don't. Right? And he's saying, these are all just opinions. Don't allow your opinions about those things to divide the church. It causes corporate division and it causes individual division. Look at uh, verse 10 in chapter 14. He says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise, again, strong words, your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It's not your job to judge them. And I'm pretty confident that if you were expecting by Friday of this week to stand before Jesus, you wouldn't have time to be worrying about what they're doing because you'd be pretty concerned with what you're doing. Look at verse 13. This is huge. He says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Do not cause your brother to stumble. It's a famous passage. We use it all the time. But did you know the passage is actually saying that we cause our brother or our sister to stumble when we judge them for what they're doing? Yes, we can have behaviors that cause other people to see things, but that's not what even what the passage is saying. The passage is saying when someone has a conviction of how they are to live out their faith and we judge them in that conviction that we actually cause them to stumble. Jesus said that our greatest testimony to the dying world is our unity. I have a good friend. Um, She tells a story about when she first started walking with Jesus that she felt very strongly that Jesus told her not to eat anything that breathes his air. And so she has been, since then, a person who only eats fish or vegetables, right? No animals. Now imagine if I judged her for that. God would never tell you that. It's not in the Bible. But maybe God has asked her to do that as a way of her honoring something from God. Maybe it's a way for her to grow in her faith. And imagine if she judged me. I'm glad that God hasn't asked me to do the same thing. I like, yes, I like steak. Right? I, I'm okay with that. But 
But imagine if she judged me because now she's heard that from God. Everybody has to hear it. And, and it's a beautiful picture. Just imagine the division that would be between these two friends. I, we get along well. We even go out to eat and she, you know, with, with Meg and, and her husband and she, she eats what she wants to eat. And I would, but she doesn't judge me. I don't judge her because, because that's what she's heard. I, I love what the passage says. There's this picture of each one should be convinced, it's verse five, each one should be convinced in his own mind. Like if God puts a conviction on your heart and it doesn't violate scripture and it's a way of you living out your faith and you're convinced that what you should do, then you should do it. And you shouldn't judge others because they don't. And we shouldn't judge you because you do. Do not quarrel over opinions. Man, some, I feel like we should just have that one like in our kitchen somewhere on the wall. Like so much of what we argue about in the church and in our home is just our opinions, right? And it would change things for the better. All right, so the ethical commands of these two chapters, honor authority, excuse me, handle debt responsibly, love everyone, walk in the light, and stop quarreling. Live your life with the reality that Jesus is coming again. Let the Advent season remind you of that truth. Live like you were dying. If you were going to hang out with Jesus at the end of the week, live that way with that reality. That could be the real deal. Whether he returns or death comes, we don't know how it's going to happen. We need to live with that sense of urgency. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would grasp the truth of what Paul is saying. The day is at hand. The hour is coming. Not so that we live in fear, but so that we make better choices. We don't put off what you're asking us to do now. We have those conversations with the people in our life that don't know Jesus. We're intentional about sharing our faith because we don't know when we're going to have another chance to do it. Help us to live in a way that honors you, brings glory to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The group that prayed for you this morning, this is what they heard, that there are some tender-hearted ladies that need uh, to be able to just share uh, what they're going through and need someone to pray over them. We would love for you to either call in or come down. We'd love to pray for you. Uh, that there's some who just feel unseen in this holiday season. We would love to pray for you. Someone is having right foot issues. Don't know what that is, but you probably do. We would like to pray for you. And that uh, we just want you to know that the children are welcome as well. So if you have children that need prayer, even if you want to go get them, bring them back in. We would love to pray over them. So we have a group of people that are trained that would meet you down here to pray. Or if you're online, there's a couple numbers on your screen. Call either of those numbers. They'll put you into a private Zoom room where you can be prayed for. Thanks for being here. Come back next week as we finish up Romans. God bless you. Get your tickets today.